This is an ABC podcast. When Susan Johnson was a young woman, she travelled from Australia to England to Greece. And arriving on a Greek island in the aquamarine Ionian Sea, she felt herself burst open by the light, the colour, the life on the streets, the taste of lemons and olives and oil and honey. Put simply, Susan fell in love. Many years later, now a woman in her 60s with two grown-up sons and a career in Brisbane, Susan realised she had had it with her life, had it with being told what to do by her boss, had it with paying the mortgage, living in the suburbs and the sameness and predictability of everything. She wanted to be free again, to feel joy and delight. She wanted to return to Greece. But she wouldn't go alone. This time, she would bring along for the adventure her 85-year-old mother, Barbara. What happened next is told in Susan's new memoir, Aphrodite's Breath. Hi, Susan. Hi, Sarah. This island that you fell in love with, how did you first end up there back when you were 19 or so? So I had the great good fortune to go to school here in Brisbane with a number of girls from Kithera. Now, Kithera, the island itself, is below the Peloponnese and just above Crete, but it's not really on many tourist routes because it's very hard to get to. By chance, um, falling in with these Kitherians and um, Maria Komninos, then she was Komino when I knew her, and Chris Zantis, who was Chris Sophias, and the Komino family in particular lived across the road from the school. And uh, her parents, Gregoria and um, Emmanuel, were just the most wonderful people. Immediately, um, I, even before I got to the island, I fell in love with the Greek culture first because they... Uh, Gregoria had this wonderful food. She was a fantastic cook, spent spanakopita, all these these things that she grew in her backyard in, in, a, in, a, in the garden in suburban Brisbane in Clayfield. When I left school, I, I went straight to the, the Courier Mail and went to the University of Queensland part-time. Um, I saved up because I, I always wanted to go to travel to Europe. And it so happened that the Komono family were going to be in Greece. So I planned the itinerary to get to Greece at the end of the trip. So I, di- I, I did start in, in London and then we went to right through Europe, but it was a particularly cold winter and f- England was freezing, France was freezing, Italy was freezing, but then we caught the ferry from um, uh, Brindisi then to, to uh, Piraeus. And then I emerged into what I could just say, this is the Greek light. Everything was shining and ablaze and warm. It was at least 15 degrees warmer. And so Maria and I still dispute this, whether we went to Kithra that time, the first time, or when I was there again when I was 21. But she thinks we went that very first time. (laughs) Um, And you'd think I'd remember that, wouldn't you? But uh, Well, when when you do know that you got to the island, what what struck you about it? What, What image? are in your mind when you think back to that first time that you spent there? Look, now I would say I, I, I think partly it's to do with being young and free and alive in the world and everything being fresh and, and new. But more particularly, I think the island, it, it is exceptionally beautiful. It is very dramatic um, it's got a, a, a dramatic coastline. It's got all those azure sort of Aegean waters, absolutely crystal clear. 
Um, but it was very much a place that, that wasn't modernised in those days. Um, you know, there was there were weren't there were in the field still the women. There were um, still had traditional headscarves. There were lots of donkeys. There weren't many cars, and it was just absolutely blissful. You know, we would take don- Maria and I would go down with her donkey down these perilous routes down to these these coves. There were hardly any tourists. There wasn't an established tourist industry then. In fact, there was only one hotel when I was there in 1978. Um, it was just bliss, absolutely, absolutely bliss. Everywhere in Greece has got some marvellous myth associated with it. What's Kithra's story? Well, Kithra's story is that um, it's called Aphrodite's Island uh, because Aphrodite was supposed to be born in its waters. Uh, her father, Zeus, became cross with his son Kronos and cut off Kronos's genitals. And the genitals fell into the water and the foam of the genitals through this uh, up arose Aphrodite. Now that is the story the Cytherians tell. Um, Cypriots also claim Aphrodite. So there's a bit of argy-bargy about where she's from, but the, according to the Cypriots and Hesiod in the, in the myth retells it that way, then she sailed in her shell to Cyprus. But, you know, with every Greek myth, there are many, many interpretations, there are many tellings, and that is just one of them. So was it somewhere that you thought much about over the years, Susan, or was it just this place you'd had this sort of magical experience as a young woman? Or or how did you kind of hold it in your mind as time went on? No, look, it really did shine in my mind completely. It was this translucent thing, my definition of happiness, because we would, we're all young, we would, a group of young people, many of them young Greek Australians, some um, occasionally someone else, I was there with a Greek, um, with an Australian of of, um, Jewish descent, there was a young English guy, and we were this young ragbag Troop. We'd walk everywhere, all over the island. There were dances down in little hidden valleys. And, and to me, one of the things that struck me was there was no generational gap. So young people would be at the end of, uh, and very small children would be at the end of one of these dances. A very old person would be at the other. There would be uh, there was no clash of generations. There just seems to be, there was one culture of uh, reverence for, for dance, for communal life, for religious um, piety. That's certainly a very religious place as well. So, the uh, you know, the Greek Orthodox Church has a central role in the community life. It was just um, a very intact, to me, village life, which I had never seen. And, and I think it's pretty rare. Nevertheless, you know, your life took its own course. You were married, you had children, you built this career in journalism and as a novelist. How did you come to the decision that you wanted to go back and live on this island? It's it, Well, look, it's, it's interesting. What happened was um, one of my novels, The Landing, was translated into Greek. And so in 2017, I think, I went back to, for the Greek launch because it really meant a lot to me. And I had other novels translated into French and German and other languages, but it really meant a lot to me that I had this novel in Greek. So I went back to Athens and while I was there, I thought, look, I'm in Athens. I hadn't been back to the island for 40-something years. 
I actually went back. And one of my old friends from those days had actually, she's, she's a Greek-American called Tuffy, Theodora, and she had relocated to the island. And so I stayed with her in one of the old village houses. And I just thought, oh, my God, it's exactly like I remember. You know, the square was still the same. Many of the, the same people were there. It really hadn't been destroyed at all. It was arguably the same place. It had not been destroyed by tourism. And I thought, this is just bliss. And so that was 2017. And then by then my dad had died. My mum had moved down to Brisbane to be with me, um, closer to me. She wasn't living with me, but she was close by. And then what happened happened to newspapers across the world was that they were, they were dying. You know, newspapers were, were in... In, in, in extremists. Um, and I was a print journalist. So they, I was working for Murdoch, who was offering around the world voluntary redundancies to people. So one day I was at a friend's um, place in the beautiful um, area of Stanthorpe. One of my oldest friends, his two sisters, lives out there. And I was visiting on this beautiful spring day. And it was just glorious. The sky was really blue. There was, um, they, they farm their own, they've got apple trees and um, they do a lot of their own farming and they bake their own things. And these, both the sisters, then there were two sisters there, had just resigned from their jobs to, you know, to work on the farm. And I thought, as I was walking across the farm, I had to go back to work the next day. I thought, you know, I'm sort of sick of what I'm doing. I'm really sick of it. I would love to be doing it. So I actually asked Kevin, who's my friend, the sister of of, of, of the girls, um, to do me a little sum. And so on, on the back of an envelope, <laughs> he said, okay, what would you get in a voluntary redundancy? So he did all these little sums and I've still got the envelope. And I thought, at a pinch, I might be able to do it. You know, was the idea to go to Greece there right I, from the start? Well, well, then I thought, well, what would, if I do give up my job, how will I earn money and how will I, how can I survive? Um, because I still had a mortgage. At that stage, one boy had gone back to London. My second son, Elliot, had moved back to London to be where, where his dad lives. But my other son, Casper, was still just finishing up at the University of Queensland. But then circumstances all, all kind of happened at the same time. Casper decided to, to leave. Then uh, somehow I got this idea of Greece. I thought, well, well, I could actually survive as a writer in Greece because it's much cheaper to live you know, if I took the redundancy and maybe if I got a, an advance or something and then suddenly this idea crystallised um, that maybe I could go to Greece. But then I thought, I can't leave mum. You know, I just can't. Um, How old was she at this point? So then mum was about 84. She was turning 85 soon. And so... I, I thought, look, could I go to Greece and take mum? As, you know, would she would she be... And I thought she would just say no. And then I thought, well, maybe I can't go to Greece. I'll just have to, to wait around because I really felt quite responsible for mum. Um, so what did she say when you proposed so, this? So I just, out of the, you know, off the top of my head, I said, mum, I've got this, this sort of hairbrand idea. What would you think if we actually moved to Greece together? Would you Would you be interested in coming? And she said, 
yeah, yeah, why not? I'll be, you know, if I die, I'll be closer to paradise. <laughs> and and so I had to obviously check with my, my brothers. And uh, I've got two younger brothers. I'm the oldest child and the only girl. Um, my brother Stephen, um, who's who's quite well travelled, sort of said, "Well, yeah, w- what else is she going to be doing? Yes, you might as well take it to Greece. Yeah, take it to Greece." Um, my youngest brother, Ian, who had had the sort of vaguest notion of where Greece was, he said, "Well, don't eat too much pasta and say hello to the Pope." Um, I don't think he had any idea where Greece was. <laughs> what did your sons think about this plan? Um, so I asked both them, and they said. I th- they thought it was great. They, they both wanted to come and see me. And, and so then we started the whole process of of, of um, trying to get a, a residency visa. Well, the process of, of setting up to live in another country is no small feat. How painful was all of the logistical hoops that you had to jump it, through? Extraordinarily painful. Um, it was just, well, look, and this was, this was pre-Brexit, though, so I, I had one great stroke of luck in that I, I'm, I'm a dual citizen. I've got a UK passport, so I didn't need to do anything. I could just live there pre-Brexit. Mum, on the other hand, needed to do this catalogue of things that she, that she couldn't believe. She had to get a police check to see that she was wanted for no crime in any Australian territory. She had to get to go through all these um, medical um, procedures to prove that, you know, she didn't have any infectious diseases including having a syphilis <laughs> test. And I just thought that the um, the doctor would just sign off, you know, and wouldn't actually do it and would just assume that she, she wouldn't have syphilis, at, you know. But no, she had to have the whole blood test. And then that was when I started to think, uh, watching mum go in for the pathology test, I thought, oh, you know, what am I doing? Am I, is she only sort of saying yes because she thinks I'm going to leave her behind and that she doesn't want to be left behind. And so, I, I, you know, we had quite a frank discussion about it. I said, look, Mum, you know, if you don't want to do it, I'm not going to go. But she said yes and, and you took off and went together travelling from from Australia all the way to Kithra, south of the Peloponnese in Greece, and you'd found a house before you arrived there. What were you feeling, uh, Susan, as you arrived at, at the beautifully named Almond Tree House? I had found it under really difficult circumstances because one thing that has changed on Kithra is that um, there is... Uh, Airbnb has really colonised the island as it's colonised elsewhere. So it was quite hard to get around the algorithms to actually correspond with people and say, look, what would what, can we have this as a long-term let? So it was quite extraordinarily diff- difficult to do. And I wanted to make sure that we... Because Kithra is very isolated. Migration happened for a reason. It's, it's a very rocky difficult terrain in many ways. And the people who left after the Second World War left because it, it is quite a hostile ter- terrain. And the, and I didn't want mum to be in um, an isolated place. So I wanted her to be near a village or preferably in a village, near a cafe, have somewhere where she could walk. But um, in fact... It was it, when we got this house. I, I, I looked at. I knew that she could. She could be downstairs, so she didn't have to make, walk up any stairs. Um, there was a little garden up the back, and I loved it. As soon as I opened the door, I loved it. Well, what did it look like from the outside? It's just a classic. It was in. A, it's in a, a, a very ancient, one of the oldest villages on the island, and in fact, the former capital. Briefly. Um, 
so all the houses, any new builds on on in this little particular village called Aranyathika, and it, I must say it took me months to learn how to say that. Um, and mum could never say it. She 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 didn't even bother saying it. Um, look, my Greek is really bad, but, um, it, you know, it, it took me a long time to, to sort of get that pronunciation. Um, mum didn't bother. She, she thought... She put it in the too hard basket. We, we thought, but when she we got to the house, I ran up, I ran up the stairs. So it's the classic white, classic stucco. little white white cube house, a roof overlooking this absolutely amazing view across the straits onto um, the Peloponnesus. Absolutely, like so white, white at, at, at the at the particular uh, mountain that we were looking at. Um, there, it's snow peaked even in summer. It's one of the highest mountains in, in Greece. And it was just the, absolutely the most beautiful place you've ever seen with the tree out the front, um, not yet in blossom because it was the end of winter when we arrived, but technically the beginning of spring. And just beautifully proportioned Greek stairs with no handrails. And I just loved it. Mum, on the other hand, I took one look at it and said, looked at the, at, the, at the bedroom that I wanted her to be in because she didn't have to go up the stairs and said, I'm not sleeping in there. And we walked, marched up the stairs with no handrails and said, okay, I'll have, I'll have this one. So I thought, okay, that's fine. But I was really worried about her. I mean, she was very um, physically well, but, you know, there were no handrails on the, on the, on the concrete steps. And what um, was she unimpressed by when you say she didn't want that bedroom? She didn't want the bedroom. It was it was too dark. It didn't suit her. There was a, a double bunk and she said, I'm not sleeping in there. And then she looked at the laundry, which wasn't actually a laundry. It was just like in a cupboard and it had one of the, well, the French have a lot of them, those barrel sort of machines. And she said, oh, that's going to take my finger off. And, you know, and that's not a bathroom. There was two bathrooms. The, the, the second bathroom downstairs was basically a wet room and didn't <laughs> suit her at all. So she so right from the beginning, she didn't like the house. When we think of Greece, we usually imagine sunshine and heat. You were there, as you say, just at the beginning of spring. What was the temperature like inside this new house? It was freezing, unfortunately. It was one of the coldest winters and really it was freezing. And poor mum, if, if only I, I had realised, of course I would have put the trip off till summer. It, and in fact, I often now wonder in retrospect, would the whole thing have been different if we'd gone in summer? You know, it was really freezing. There's no, there was no proper heating. They were all like little bar heaters. And um, there were a couple of um, sort of oil burners and things like that. Um, there was a fire. So I had to learn my, how to make a fire pretty smartly. Um, yes. What kind of wardrobe had your 85-year-old mum brought to this little remote village in, on an island? She had lived in Queensland for, she were originally, she grew up in, in, in Sydney, but she had lived in Queensland for many years and she really was not used to any temperatures below about 20 really. Um, so she sort of complained about the, the cold pretty much from the get-go. And she had, you know, as, as a lot of Queensland women of a certain age, you know, I think she only had one woolen, true woolen jumper. Everything else was acrylic or tracksuity sort of things. So she was freezing, you know, and I felt really, really guilty and horrible. And and as well as that, she didn't really 
enjoy walking very much. You know, I was thinking that she, that she would, we would do walks, but she really didn't enjoy that at all. So how did she spend her days? So she became very interested in, well, she's always been an excellent cook. So she took up cooking. She always did um, cross uh, crossword puzzles. So she had a big stack of crossword puzzles because she wanted to keep her mind active. She, um, we did a lot of touring around the islands. She was, she was a great reader. I negotiated with a, a dear friend, Emma. She got a, um, a Kindle that she could bring. So she was reading and I downloaded a whole lot of books for her. But, you know, her main thing was, you know, cooking and cleaning. And um, she, she had been a sort of, my father was a, a, a businessman for 3M, which is, you know, Scotch tape, Minnesota mining. And she had been a sort of, I, I guess, a housewife who used to do excellent dinner parties and things like that. So she 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 was very used to cooking and she was an excellent cook. So she would do these wonderful Greek meals and she did a couple of excellent Avlemino's um, soups and, you know, she did, she was trying out Greek recipes. We had oodles of lemons. Um, so there were there were lemons everywhere. She was in, in her 80s, Susan, but a glamorous 80, perhaps partly that sort of you know, adulthood she'd spent as the wife of a successful businessman hosting dinner parties. She brought a kind of glamour to to life on the island with you. That's right. I mean, um, someone christened her the, the, the top model pretty quickly. Um, you know, like she was, she's, she was a great beauty, my mother. Uh, she had done modelling in her youth. And she also had this absolutely wonderful upswept sort of French roll that was, she had beautiful silver hair, but it was very, very stylish. And, you know, she wasn't ever a person who, a woman who felt her age. You know, she'd done, um, she was a singer as well in her youth and sort of given it all up. And, but, but definitely. Dad had always said, you know, she was the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen in his life. And she was a, a great beauty mum. You know, she she really came to the island with a great wardrobe of clothes um, and... And, um, and a fondness for cigarettes. She never stopped smoking. She was, you know, liked a, a cigarette or two um, and, and was absolutely thrilled to learn that in Greece cigarettes are about... <laughs> Two cents a fag, <laughs> so so there was no way it was going to give it, you know. And, and everyone smokes in Greece as well, you know. Like like it's still like they have tried to to prevent it in in restaurants and things, but it, you know she was absolutely overjoyed. So she to complained learn she, about the cold, but loved the the price yes, of ciggies. Yeah, that's right. You were busy trying to work on a novel. You were also throwing yourself into the the village life in the way that you'd remembered and loved, dancing and walking and practicing Greek and and making friends. But your mum was was pretty isolated there at home. How did things come to a head between you, Susan, about um, the differing experiences that the two of you were having on this Greek adventure? I think that you know mother daughter relationships can always be be difficult sometimes. I'm the only girl. I'm the oldest child. Um, I think temperamentally I'm much more like Dad, but Dad was much more of a um, overly emotional. Um, yeah, his emotions. I'm not saying that Mum wasn't emotional. She was. She loved things deeply, and she was a committed Christian. Both my parents were sort of born again into, I guess you would say, kind of charismatic faiths. But Mum and I 
you know, I was her only daughter. She was a model in her young, in her youth. She was a great beauty, and I had come of age in the in in feminism of the of the seventies. And to me, the idea of defining a woman by what she looks like was um, not um, a, 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 a great thing. So, so did you had arguments? Like, did you have big blow up arguments as you were growing up? Was it that kind of dynamic? No, sometimes? no. I, I was one who did the silent treatment. You know, I I would um, just not talk, and I was. And it, I think I got that from her, actually. So we would often do, you know, we did have a difficult relationship when I was young. But you know, after my dad died in 2010, we'd become much more close. And uh, you know, she, she, she had moved down, in fact, from her the Sunshine Coast to be with me, um, closer to me. And so I would ring her every single day and I would do things on the weekend. And we'd gone on holidays together. But one night you did have one of those big kind of blow-up arguments that can happen even with people who are practised at the silent treatment. How did that conclude, that big fight you and your mum had in this little house? Um, you know, mum, mum sort of said to me, you know, what did you think I'd be doing here? You know, like, like, what am I supposed to be doing? And I said, well, surely you would have thought about that. What did you think you'd be doing? Um, I, I really wanted to turn the question on her, but, but you know, she, she basically said, you know, this is a terrible house, we have to leave. And, you know, we'd signed a year's contract on it. Um, you know, it was extraordinarily difficult to break this, this agreement because these people had given us a very good deal. It was a great house, I thought. But, you know, she just really took a, a dislike to it straight away. So it was extraordinarily difficult. And then what did you ask her, Susan? I mean, was it, had she had, um, did you put it to her that maybe this wasn't working, this whole planned adventure to have this time together? Did she want to go back to I, Australia? I said to her, okay, you know, it, I said to her, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give the bloody money back. I'll give the, you know, we had a, a humding a row. I said, you know, what did you, and then I, I stormed out, basically. I was absolutely furious. I thought, you know, she's done nothing but complain when she gets here. Um, you know, the house is wrong. Um, you know, it's too cold. It was, you know, and, and and I really thought, oh, this is just dreadful. Um, so I I stormed out. But as the further I got away from the house, the more I thought, no, you know, I can't do this. So, Susan, things came to a head between you and your mum. You just wanted two conflicting things about this time in Greece. So what did your mum decide to do? So very early on, I would say two months in, several weeks in, she decided she wasn't going to stay. Now, I was horrified at first and then she said... Why horrified? Well, because I'd I'd had such hopes. You know, um, I'd... I knew mum could be difficult, but I had this dream of what it was going to be. I thought that she would just fall in love with it like I had fallen in love with it. And I was really quite surprised that, that she didn't really. Um, I don't know what I, why I thought, I don't know, I just thought, I know she, she'd done a lot of travel, but basically she'd done travel as, as the wife of a businessman, really. And she hadn't done a lot of, um, she, she, they lived in a, 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 a Tuscan farmhouse once with, when she did a big trip with my late grandparents, uh, her parents. Um, but I think that, that it was all a bit r- too rustic for her. Was she one of those people too, Susan, who just likes being at home? You know, holidays are all well and good, but she liked where she lived. I think that was true. And I think that that, that really did become clear. Um, you know, she, she wasn't as, as kind of 
interested in, 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 in learning about local cultures and, and local people as much as I thought she would be, really. Um, you know, she wanted to... to uh, she had a few ideas before we went of, you know, certain, she, she was a great cook, my mother, and she used to do fantastic sandwiches, you know, you know, like very creative ones. And she had this idea, oh, maybe she could make Australian-type sandwiches at the markets. And I sort of said, oh, you know, that's a great idea. Um, and I was trying to sort of, you know, encourage her to, you know, to, to meet some of the local local women uh, and men. Um, but really, she just wasn't. I was surprised that she wasn't interested in, in, in doing that. Um, so that was a bit of a surprise. And so she did decide, or, and together you accepted, that she was going to leave earlier than intended. But before that, you'd accepted this house was not working for her, despite it seeming to fit the criteria that you wanted. So you set out looking for a new, a new house, which you found further south on the island. What was it like? How did it compare to, well, to the first place? Well, the reason I chose the other house was because mum could walk everywhere and, you know, it was much more central. So we ended up in this other house, was sort of in the middle of nowhere, really. Um, we were only one of four people in the village. It's called um, uh, uh, Manitohori. And um, it was a brother and sister that we came across who were the most delightful people. Then they became our dear friends. This is Maria and Manoli. Mum loved the house and she loved... You know, even though it was really, she couldn't walk anywhere. She couldn't, um, you know, we had to go in in, in, in a car everywhere. And the, the other reason I'd chosen the other place was because she could walk and it, there was a, it was near a shop. Um, so we're in this... So this, what did she love about this one, do you think? Well, I don't know. I think possibly, you know, what I think it was, it, you know, if, if I'm honest, I think it was her asserting her will. That's what I think. I think that, you know, we got into this power struggle somehow that, you know, mum mum was definitely the one that was used to being in charge and she didn't really like being dispossessed of her authority, which is what actually happened because I had a smattering of Greek. I knew the place. I, 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 I did, certainly felt more competent and, and at ease in my surroundings. And I think it was a way of her asserting her power. Really, that's what I think. There was a power struggle. You also moved just as spring was finally starting to show itself on the island. How does spring announce itself in Kithra? Oh my God, it is glorious. It is, if you want to be anywhere in the world, you want to be in Greece in spring. The whole place comes alive. Just the colours of the flowers. There's tiny little red poppies. There's yellow. There's purple. There's sort of wild snapdragons that grow everywhere. It is the most glorious and the scent of, of just the flowers in the air. Kithra is the most extraordinarily beautiful place. Um, it's got coves everywhere. It's got um, mountains. It's got... Um, uh, third sort of um, pine areas. It's it's it, it, well, Greece is is uh, uh, we know one of the most spectacularly it, beautiful countries. It's easier to feel better about things when you know the, the smell of wildflowers everywhere Absolutely. in the air. And the, you know, m- even Mum unfurled really in some ways. I would say that you know, she, w- with the coming of the warmth, Mum felt much better too. And also, she felt better because she'd sort of asserted her authority really in choosing the house. I think that made her feel better. The big religious ritual of spring is Easter in that part of the world. How is it celebrated on the island? What happens at the Easter liturgy? Easter is so important and that was really the turning point for us because we joined uh, Easter celebrations down in Ayia Palaya, uh, which is near 
um, it's on the the sea and where Manolia Maria took us for Easter lunch. And all the tables are, are laid out. There, there's some red eggs, you know, the, the, the symbolising rebirth. They're usually set out along the table. There's um, roast lambs being roasted. It's a very communal thing. And it's an absolutely Jewish occasion. You'll have music, there'll be dancing. Um, people come back to their ancestral islands from Athens because many, many uh, Greeks move from their ancestral islands because of um, the economy to, to Athens. So everyone returns to their to their family islands. It's the most joyous occasion. And what happens in the church And at, the church at midnight. At, at midnight is just so beautiful. And see, I couldn't get mum to go to the church because she was, um, she just saw it as, um, as not a Christian r- r- ritual in the same way that she she saw it. Um, And so at midnight, um, the lights are dimmed and everybody, the the priest goes into the vestry and then emerges with the, the lit candle, which is then everyone goes up with their candles and lights their candle from the, the, the priest from the papoose and uh, then the, everybody proceeds, all the lights come up ablaze, a there's flowers, there's a, a, a great procession of, of, of peeling of the bells and light and everyone floods out of the church in this one wave of, of light and humanity and greets the, the next person wishing them Happy Easter, Christ is risen. And then the bells peal above your head and it's just the most glorious, glorious occasion you can ever imagine. Another magic time on the island is the olive harvest. Olives are still such a big part of the economy and the culture. You participated with your neighbours in their harvest. What job were you given? The women generally are the ones that that, um, go into the trees. It's still very much a manual job. I mean, there are machines now that you can put up into the trees and and basically dislodge the olives. But there are big nets laid out end-to-end around the trees and then basically your job is to move the, 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 the nets to the next set of trees. So I was on a ladder with a, um, a, a very old-fashioned scraper um, where you, you're basically shredding the, the, the olives from the, from, the, from the leaves and they drop onto the nets below. And it's just the most magical, um, it's just a repetition and all the women in the trees, many of them you, you wear scarves because it protects your, your, your hair and, and face from the... So it's a centuries, centuries old tradition and, and many old women will still do it. They'll be up combing the, the olives from the, from the leaves up on the, on the ladders, chattering away, you know, like, like birds. It's tends to be a women's, woman's job. And then afterwards, you'll all gather up the olives um, from the nets, you know, everyone taking one, one end to end and drag the olives over to the machines where they're, all the, um, the twigs and leaves, any that are on the olives are removed and, and they're, they're, they're placed into the sacks. It's the most wonderful work. And, and I think that most, it's, it's exhausting, um, there are now other modern ways of, of harvesting olives, but it's still the best way to actually comb out the, the, the leaves. Um, there are other ways of shaking the trees and, and you know, other, other, other methods, more mechani- mechanised methods, but it's very much a communal thing. The women will cook for the workers. Um, there will always be one woman generally or, or a couple of women, mothers and grandmothers, who cook and bring out the food for the workers in the field. 
And I know that um, as I got to know Catherians more and more, some of the, the women would say to me, uh, you know, the harvest time is, is the most exhausting time of the year for them because they're up cooking, they've got to take it out to the, to the field um, and, and they'll, they'll also drink um, homemade wine out there as well, just have a, a, a cups. But to me, this, these are centuries-old traditions that have still got a lot of beauty and uh, conviviality in them because... Maria, to, uh, Maria and Manoli, they told me they look forward to it. They love it. It's, it's, it's very much a communal, joyous thing. And, you know, there are jokes, there are, you know, um, many of their relatives will come and help with, with the harvest. And, and then you take them to the, to, the, to the olive processing plant, which is owned by the community. And I, w- I would go with, with uh, Maria in, in their old truck, which it soon became clear had absolutely appalling breaks because <laughs> <laughs> it's a very hilly island and we'd hop in the thing uh, and, and, you know, like the, the brakes would make a terrible sound and then we'd be sliding down the hill and I sort of said, Maria, how, what are the, I started to get really panicky and said, Maria, what are, how are the brakes? And she said, medium. Medium. I think I'd go on the donkey, Susan, if that was an option. This lovely neighbour, Manoli, took you and your mum sometimes to the beach and, and where he would fish. How would he go about doing that? Manoli is a joy to behold. Everything about Manoli I absolutely love. He's tiny. He's came up to came, came up to my shoulder. So he'd be he'd be lucky if he made five foot. There are quite a lot of tall Catherians, but there are also a lot of small Catherians as well. And he belongs to the smaller <laughs> Catherians. And um, he is just a creature of the land, and he's a creature of Kithara in, in, in the best possible way. He knows it intimately. And so he took us one day to Feloti, which is a very remote part of the island. And, uh, you know, I quaked with a terror going down the, these absolutely enormously steep cliffs down to this bay. And he took us to this, first of all, he took us to this... Um, it's it's a cave um, carved out of uh, of a cave. It's it's a little church carved out of a cave for sailors for for good luck in in the treacherous seas. And it's just the most wondrous thing. It's just hand painted by centuries uh, long dead Catherians, and they've just got these lovely uh, little images of boats um, on the, on the caves, and they've there's little icons to to. Um, to save them from perishing in the seas, um, and and we, and then when we got to the to the to Feloti, um, there's Manoli is swimming out with his um, hand spear, um, and just it takes out like a like a creature of the of, of the land and sea, and just swims away. And Mum and I were left. Uh, in this beautiful little little bay, um, where we had Mum bought a little seat. She had a um, her. She was fully kitted out in in a rashi, as we call it in Australia, you know. And I gave her a hand over the rocks because some of Kithara, most of the bays are quite rocky. And and it was the first time she she'd swum actually, and and guided her gently in. And she said. Oh my God! She looked up and said, "This is just absolutely paradise." Above us was just this glorious blue, these dramatic cliffs, um, the green of of um, uh, there was a little olive grove kind of behind, but and and um, goats sort of wandering around the. And it was just exquisite. And then Manoli, after an hour or two, I just seemed to be away a long time, sort of swam in, clutching an octopus 
and an eel. I mean, you know, this absolutely magnificent squirming eel, which he then put on a rock and 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 proceeded to carve up like a, a master sushi <laughs> sushi chef. You know, he was just extraordinary. I mean, he was just he, you know Manoli. I I love Manoli, and and I think Manoli loves. Us as well. He really, you know, they they became very, very dear friends to us. The time came for your mum to leave Greece and she flew back to Australia with one of your brothers. And you were there alone on the island, Susan. Although it had been fraught at times, did you miss her once she was gone? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the first thing that happened was... um, you know, mum was a great cook, as I've said, and she 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 took charge of all the food. And I remember the very first time it hit me, I went into the supermarket where we used to go and um, I stood in front of the, the counter. I was just about to ask for um, some cheese and I was just, this is where after I'd put her on the plane and I was just completely hit by this, this sense that, you know, she'd gone and um, I had to... I thought I was going to faint with, I mean, I know it sounds ridiculous, but I, I, it had been so fraught, but, you know, she was so, so brave to actually do it. Um, I, I had to, I, I was really worried that I, you know, anyway, I just sort of, I was just hit with this grief. So I had to sort of uh, rush away and then go back into the car and sit in the car. Um, and then, you know, when I got to the house, I realised that, um, you know, we, it, I wish it could have been different, really. But, you know, she was so brave to come. It was incredibly brave to come. You know, not many 85-year-olds would up their lives and pack up their houses and... Um, it's a mark of her trust in you too, yeah, really, yeah, yeah. to right. lead this expedition. Absolutely, absolutely. You stayed on uh, another year or so writing mm-hmm. uh, a novel, but COVID helped push you and, and put obstacles to you, but you made it back uh, to Australia and arrived just before your mum's 87th birthday. You hadn't seen her for a year or so. How did she look? Oh, I was really shocked. Um, the first thing to see was um, she seemed to have shrunk. She had had a fall, um, tripped over something in in a, in a pantry and so she'd fallen over. And um, you know, they, they say that can happen. Like now she was 87 and they, you know, I mean, I, the, the common wisdom seems to be that, um, you know, like it, it can happen, a fall can, um, you know, precipitate um, old age in many people. And, and, and she'd, she'd really, she looked really frail. And the, the main thing was she'd cut off her hair. And, you know, she, she'd always had this, um, you know, French role and uh, it was such a shock to see her with, um, you know, with, with short hair. Um, and she, she was building a house next to my brother's house up on the Sunshine Coast. And, um, you know, so she was, you know, her normal bossy self, you know, it was, you know, she was bossing everyone around and changing things. And, you know, she was, she was very feisty, my mother. She was very admirable in many ways. She was an incredibly strong person. You know, she she had to be, you know, dad was a very strong character and mum was too. But, you know, it was a shock of really seeing her with short hair. You were staying with her one weekend, only a few months later, when she passed away really quite suddenly. And I guess for all of your travelling and love of travelling, it must have felt like a blessing to you that you were home and, and with her. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, absolutely, because... Um I, I had been up the weekend before and um, I went up the... I was living in Brisbane and she was at the Sunshine Coast. She was building a house near, next to my brother, Stephen. I went up 
one weekend and the next weekend she actually admitted for the first time that she was struggling Um, and that's a big thing for mum because she's such a strong person but you know she was much much frailer I you know undoubtedly and so my my much loved sister-in-law Janet um, who I'm very very close to my brother Stephen's wife um, and I had sat down the night before with her to uh to set up a care plan, you know, it's, um, you know, you've got a, so it's a big long form and, you know, we, we started to fill that in. And um, the next morning she was going to get up for church. Uh, she, she used to go to, you know, in, in, I don't know if you remember in lockdown, there were a lot of um, things that were done remotely. So I'd set up her iPad for her. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, did, that didn't happen. She mightn't have appreciated Kithra or the island the way that you do, Susan. But I think it's such a beautiful gift that you took your 85-year-old mother and gave her that experience of swimming in the Ionian Sea and, and sharing Easter with those villagers. Yeah, no, I, no, I think it was actually. Now I, I look back and I think it was, a, you know, a remarkable thing really that we were able to do it. You know, we had become very close really when Dad died. Dad died in 2010. And really the last, you know, 10 years, we had become much, much closer. Um, we did a lot of things together. We'd gone on holidays before and, you know, we used to, I used to take her out to restaurants and things. Um, you know, in many ways, we were, we were women of really represented our, our different generations. You know, mum was a woman of the 50s who was a great beauty who'd given up everything to be to be married and raise children. But, you know, that had, I would say, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a feminist of the 70s that, 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 you know, grew up in a completely different era. And, um, you know, was kind of, when I was younger, kind of scathing about um, wives, um, you know, who without jobs. But, you know, I think mum and mum would never have ever said that she was disappointed or frustrated by her life. And in fact, she did go back as a, and work as a fundraiser for uh, the Miss Australia Quest, um, you know, when she was older. And it turned out to be an excellent, excellent at it. Um, After she passed away, Susan, you moved into the house that she'd built in the mountains and were writing this memoir that that you've just published. Was it a kind of balm to reimagine her or was it the last thing you wanted to do in the wake of your mum's death? Well, look, all I can say is thank goodness I had actually written a great deal of it when I had been on Kithra. I, 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 like, you could say the tone of it was set already. I'd, I'd written probably about 10,000 words. I, you know, I hadn't dared tell, tell my publisher until very late in the, in the proceedings that mum was going home early. Luckily, well, she... They thought that, you thought they'd bring the money back. Yeah, well, you to write a memoir about living in Absolutely. Greece with your mum. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, we didn't tell them when, you know, two months in. I mean, I did tell my, my darling publisher, Annette Barlow, le- later that, that that, you know, like towards mum leaving. And, you know, she was there for the best part of a year, essentially. So, you know, and she was very good to do that because, um, you know, she could have gone home in a half, but she didn't. I had, luckily, I had 10,000 words written because, you know, basically what happened um, after that um, was pretty much immediately after mum died, um, I had a, uh, a, a cancer diagnosis. Um, and so... Uh, you know, that that sort of upset everything. So all this dramatic stuff kind of had not been... Uh, expected. So there, so you might say that the, the memoir turned out to be something different, but, but thank goodness I'd already had the tone sort of set. Do you think it would have been a very different book if your mum was still alive? I think it would have been. I, I definitely think it would have been. You know, um, I think that I would have felt... Uh, 
you know, like we, I, I, I love my mother, and I, I, um, I I'm a, but I'm also a writer, and we know that you know writers, um, it quite often are seen as betraying their families. You know, um, there's a lot of people like Philip Larkin who talks about, um, you know, the ice pick in the in the heart. Um, you know, there's there's, there's people that. You know, it is a difficult thing. I know that um, the American writer David Sedaris, you know, says, uh, you know, he's he's very funny, obviously, but he says, you know, you, you know, your mother's been diagnosed with cancer, ka-ching. You know, he's terrible. He's terribly <laughs> cruel. But, you know, mum knew, mum knew, she she knew very much what I was doing and mm. she she was always my greatest supporter. She was always my greatest supporter, but it meant I, I didn't feel free to... I wanted to write truthfully, but I think it would have been a different book was, if, if Mum had still been alive. Was there a weird thing that your brain was doing as you were writing it, even after she'd passed away, that that she was somehow reading it, or what what would she make of what you oh, were absolutely, writing? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. I. I I didn't want anything that she would to write anything that she would be ashamed of or anything that she would, you know, disapprove of. And I know that many of my writer friends would say, well, that doesn't make you a writer because writers have to write absolutely the unvarnished truth. I think I love my mother dearly and I want her to be remembered as a wonderful, strong woman, which she was. You know, um, you know, all of us have got faults. I've got faults. She's got faults. You know, who who among us is a saint? No one is a saint. You know. What about you, Susan? Will you go back to this island that's played such a big part in in your life over different periods? I'm going back uh, in uh, July. I'm going to give personally a copy to Manoli and to Maria my dear friends, and I, Manoli can't read English, um, nor does he speak it much, Maria does. Um, I want them to feel um, that I've honoured their lives in some way, that I that I haven't been some sort of, you know, um, tourist that's, that's, that's sort of just come in and, and, and taken and, you know, written some jolly account. I really wanted to honour their lives and show them truthfully. And I think the Catherians are a wonderful people. I think they've had a lot of suffering to put up with. They've, they've, they've been through world wars. They've been through um, the harshness of migration. There's, they, they, they've, they, if, if they know about loss of family and the love of family, they know about that. You know, they are a fine people and they really know how hard life can be. And what do you miss most about the way you lived there or life there? What do you miss most about that back here in Australia? Look, what Catherians have is, is something that they call kef, kefi. I mean, it's a Greek word, but it, it means something like the joy of, of living. What they, they can do is they can make a, a story, they can make um, a joy out of everything. You know, like even even at a funeral, they'll make, it, you know, there'll be food, there'll be uh, coming together, there will be, they, they, they just have a great capacity for joy. Well, I wish you all the kefi in the world, Susan. Thank you so much for sharing your Thank story. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.